Um, if you guys are new here, um, what we've been going over through the past several weeks, uh, past several months actually, is the book of Ephesians. We're going to continue to go through this. Uh, if you are and have been consistent, you know, family member, come in on Sunday mornings, you know that we've been going through this. One of the things that we've been saying about the book of Ephesians is that the first three chapters in short uh, really kind of outline for us the actions of this healing God, that God is up to something in this universe. And uh, real quick, if you don't have a Bible, why don't you raise your hands? We have some people that want to get you guys a Bible, so we all have a Bible. So, um, and just as we're getting ready, open up to Ephesians chapter 4, if I hadn't already mentioned that. So um, we have this God that is this healing God, and he is up to something in this universe, and what he's up to is not destruction, is not brokenness. It's actually to undo the brokenness and to undo that which is destroyed in order to bring healing. This is what we see through Jesus. This is why we can say that this is what God is up to. Is because Jesus himself declared that everything that he is, everything that he had done, was done through the Father. He was done as a result of the Father. Jesus said that he was the perfect representation of God. So everything that Jesus did, it's safe to say that this is a representation of who God is. So therefore, we can say that just as Jesus brought healing to broken places, broken people. So God is up to bringing healing to broken people and broken places. But part of that healing involves taking broken people, as we already alluded to, healing them, restoring them, and then calling them to be a part of this community, this new people, a new humanity that then can now portray, demonstrate, show forth what God is like. This a new community is actually called the church. And this is really chapters uh, 4, 5, and 6 that Paul begins to unpack what the church is like and what the church does, how the church lives, how the church portrays God through their actions, not just simply by doing uh, little works of service like reading their Bible or personal devotional times or going to church on Sunday morning or helping out at church or helping out on Sunday morning in the children's ministry. All those things may be good and all those things are beneficial and helpful, but at the end of the day, there's something bigger that God is up to through the church to bring forth healing into this broken world through this once broken people actually still being healed and have the brokenness undone to now then go forth into this world to bring healing. This is what God is up to. So what we've been saying in this great book is that Paul now in chapter four begins to transition, begin to talk about the church as being and living out and embodying certain types of actions. Some of those actions might look like patience. Paul says in chapter 4, I'll read it to you very brief, briefly. Paul says in chapter 4, verse 1, he says, I therefore, prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner that's worthy of the calling which you've been called. And then he goes on to say, in all humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love, so on and so forth. All of these are basically descriptions of actions that are healing actions. Uh, the reason why we say that is because the opposite of those words, which is opposite of humility, is arrogance, and the opposite of patience is impatience, and uh, opposite of forgiveness is someone who holds a grudge. All of those words are destructive words. In other words, if you live in a marriage, for example, and each of you are both arrogant, and each of you are both impatient, and each of you are always holding grudges against each other, that marriage is toxic. Does that, does that make sense? But conversely, if in that marriage, both of you are patient, both of you are humble, both of you are uh, forgiving, both of you work with the aim towards love, that is actually a really healthy marriage. And if you've got kids, 
Your kids see that and they grow up in a healthy environment and they learn how to function socially with other people. That the way, the normal does not always have to be impatience. The normal does not always have to be brokenness and uh, uh, grudges and vengeance and all these other things. That there's a different way, in other words, to be human. That God, through the gospel, the good news, this proclamation of what Jesus has done, is basically undoing the effects and the consequences of sin, which, by the way, sin actually has a dehumanizing impact and effect upon us. And what the gospel does is it rehumanizes us. It makes us truly, fully human, heals us. This is what God is up to. He's restoring, renewing, rebuilding, healing that which was once broken. And so, this is what Paul has been unpacking for us in the book of Ephesians. And now what we're going to read this morning is Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 to 24. And this little passage is actually, I, I think in some ways, sort of the, the climax of where Paul was going from the very beginning of the book. In other words, Paul wrote this letter to this church, to this group of people, this, as we've been saying from the beginning, uh, there was all sorts of churches that Paul had been involved with starting and planting and uh, the church there in the city called Ephesus happened to be one of those churches that Paul had uh, it, it been a part of, watching them grow from kind of the ground up to sort of this flourishing uh, community of people within this great pagan city called Ephesus. And Paul there was now writing to this church, encouraging them to continue to keep living forth uh, as the community of people that God called them to live forth as within this great uh, massive city. And so what Paul is now going to write to them He's going to exhort them, encourage them to say, hey, you guys, make sure that you continue to walk in the way in which we talked about. So Paul, obviously, there's a lot that Paul communicated to these people that uh, we don't necessarily know exactly everything that Paul shared. I mean, Paul obviously makes allusion to some of the things that he writes about in the book of Ephesians, and we can kind of put together a little bit of a portrait or a picture as to what Paul communicated. But for the most part, we don't know everything that Paul communicated to them. But what Paul is writing to this group of people after he had already left this group of people, is to basically say, hey, remember everything we talked about? Therefore, walk in a manner that is consistent or worthy with who you are, who you've become. This is it. This is why Paul is writing it. So I want to really begin to read. Before I do, I want to make a quick statement and claim. But the reality is, is that what Christianity does, Christianity offers, throw up a slide here. I think I have this slide up here that Maybe three slides forward. There we go. That's one. So I wrote it out, so I don't have to remember it. Basically, Christianity offers us the resources to genuinely change, not just simply in a superficial manner. This is, this is a radical claim. But this is really the claim of what Christianity is all about. Christianity is not just simply advice so that you can then go forth and be a, uh, a different type of a person. It really, truly offers you the resources to truly change. Not just add information to your mind in which areas maybe you were once ignorant. Now you have more information. Now you can be a better person. It's not like going to college where you go to college and maybe you go in ignorant of certain uh, things in certain fields. Then you go out of college or you begin to learn new things or you know certain things so that you can apply to your life. Christianity is not just simply gathering information so that you can know more. Christianity claims to actually change you fundamentally, not superficially, not just simply on the outside, not just morally, but truly from the inside out. This is what Christianity really is. And then we'll unpack how that takes place in the following 
as we begin to unpack this. But I want to read the passage, and then we'll come back to the how question. How does Christianity do this? How does the gospel actually uh, impact and affect change in your life, true change, genuine change, not just simply superficial change? So I want to read the passages that we'll be taking a look at here this morning, beginning at verse 17, go down to verse 24, and then uh, I'll pause, and then I'll pray, and then we'll get to work understanding sort of the how question as to how the gospel actually claims to do this, because Paul lays out for us a bunch of ways in which this actually happens in this really dense passage of text. So verse 17 says this, now I say to you, and I testify in the Lord uh, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They were darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their heart. They had become callous, and they had given themselves up to sensuality and greedy to practice every kind of impurity, but that is not the way that you learned Christ. Verse 21, he says, assuming that you have heard about him and you were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus to put off the old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through the deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your mind and to put on a new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So God, we ask you right now that you would help us understand what this means. God, that we wouldn't just simply be people that learn facts. That we just simply would approach Christianity as nothing more than a a moralistic behavioral change mechanism. God, that we we wouldn't just simply see it as that. God, that your aim, your goal is not just simply to make nice people, it's to make brand new people. And God, we confess, we, we live in a culture, and maybe some of us even here have somehow confused that your ultimate aim is just to make us moral people. And somehow the whole reality of being new people have, has, has really not ever even truly impacted us. And we ask God right now that you would help us to catch a glimpse of who you are and what you're up to, not only in this universe and all creation, throughout all creation, but God, individually, in our own hearts, in our lives, who you are and what you truly desire to do. So we, God, ask you that you would just open our hearts, open our minds, give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear all the things that you would desire to speak to us. And we pray and ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, again, the reality is that Christianity does offer us the resources or claims to offer us the resources to change, not just simply superficially, but in reality, genuinely. So the question that I really want to try to unpack this morning is how. In reality, what Paul does is he tells us how. He tells us the ways in which the gospel, this good news, the proclamation of what God has done for us on our behalf, that has begun to send ripples throughout this ancient Roman Empire. One of those cities happened to be Ephesus that we looked at, and we've kind of spent some time over the past several weeks unpacking and then looking at what Ephesus was and why that was such a significant city. And yet, in this midst of this big pagan city that had this massive temple to uh, the god uh, goddess Diana, which um, really, in this particular city, God was building up a community of people, this community of saints. We call this the church. And in this church, God was actually transforming people's lives. They were different people. This good news, the gospel was actually going forth and transforming people's lives. Not just so that they went from being immoral to now being moral, but 
they were, went from being dead people to alive people. They went from being people that were broken to being renewed people. This is what the gospel does. And so what I want to do is I wanted to spend a few moments looking at some of the various ways in which the gospel actually uh, does give us the resources to change. So again, this is, a lot of it is in response to the how question. How does the gospel do this? And there's a handful of things that we'll take a look at. We'll see how far we get along here this morning. I'm just for the record, I got five. Hopefully, we'll make it through all five. Um, so first of which, we'll take a look at, is the gospel actually gives us a new identity. This is a, the, the first and foremost thing that Paul has sort of been unpacking through, not only throughout this entire book, but also within this very little section here, that it gives us a new identity. And Paul starts off by basically saying two things in verses 22 and verse 24 are really key and very significant passages. Where Paul uses this interesting statement. He says, put off your old self, in verse 24, then he says, put on your new self. The implication, to some degree, kind of uses sort of the metaphor of clothing. Take off the clothing of your former self, put on the clothing of a brand new self that has been gifted to you, that God has given to you. Um, another type of clue that comes up within the passage here in verse 17, it says this, now I say to you, I testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as Gentiles do in the futility of their mind. What's fascinating about this, if you've you know, been uh, paying attention here, heard what we've been already talking about, is that this is a predominantly Gentile city. So if you want to think of it this way, Gentiles are anybody who was a non-Jew. So uh, for the most part, you can break the entire old ancient world down into two major categories, at least to some degree, that's how the Bible does it in various ways, shapes, and forms, uh, is that you have the Jewish world, Jewish interaction, then you have the Gentile world, the Gentile interaction of people coming together. So Jews, for the most part, had a lot of prejudices towards Gentiles. Jews, for the most part, uh, kind of viewed themselves as God's unique and special people, and they were given the Torah, they knew about Moses, they lived morally, they walked according to kosher lifestyles and standards, they avoided certain unclean meats, and they avoided certain uh, immoral type of practices, and they would have been, it would have been common for them to look at the rest of the world around them that didn't eat clean food, that didn't dress in certain clothing, that didn't um, abide by certain moral practices, that didn't keep certain holy days, that worshiped false gods, that did all sorts of other things that the Jews didn't do. And it was very easy for the Jews to look at the rest of the world around them condescendingly, to look at them as if, you know, we're holy, we're righteous, we follow God, we're God's special, unique, uh, approved, loved people, and the rest of you guys are nothing more than kindling for God's barbecue. And that's, for the most part, they were sort of this prejudice that the Jews had. So therefore, with that type of prejudice, you can imagine Jews and Gentiles did not really necessarily get along very well, right? They, they weren't good friends. They weren't hanging out at local, like, Turkish coffee shops and just chilling. They didn't do that because there were these prejudices, all right? It'd be like going back, you know, back in the, in the 50s and even prior to that, during the time of the Deep South and finding, you know, at a coffee shop, a black person and a white person sitting down just having a meal with each other. That didn't happen. Even though they may have been both Christians, for the most part, that may not have happened because they lived under certain ideas and ideologies that were basically at loggerheads with each other. They were false and there were these prejudices that separated them. But what Paul is saying is that in Ephesus, there is a church, there's a community, there's a community of God's people where those distinctions that were once 
predominant in the ancient Roman Empire don't exist in the church. That Jew and Gentile alike have actually come together. Male and female alike have come together. Slave and uh, free, or in other words, boss or master or servant, came together. Rich and poor came together. There was not the distinctions that were there throughout the rest of the world. That what happened was God formed a new community that was based upon people that had been given a new identity. They were given a new identity. They'd put off their old self. They'd put off that which defined them. And so therefore, Paul starts off by basically saying, you no longer don't walk like Gentiles anymore. And again, this is sort of ironic because the reality is, is they were Gentiles, right? So be, Paul is uh, saying to them, don't walk, don't live. The idea of walking is a, sort of a metaphor of saying, live your life out, Walk in such a way, live your life out. It's a metaphor for how you live your life, how you conduct yourself, how you order your life and your steps throughout life. Paul's saying, don't order the steps of your life. Don't live your life according to the system, the ways of the Gentiles. Why? Because Paul's point is that even though that may be who you were, that's not who you are anymore. Your new creation. Put off the old self. Put off that which was once identified. There's actually a Greek word. Uh, it's the Greek word stoichia. It's not necessarily used here, but it's a word that basically describes the system of this world. And throughout the New Testament, it basically describes that the system of this world will one day come apart. It will come undone. It will break apart. Think about it this way. There's a system of the world in which we live in. Right? There's a system of the way in which the world that we live in. For the most part, the system of the world is kind of a dog-eat-dog type of a world. All right? Wouldn't you all agree with that? I mean, we, we see that. Not, I mean, it's easy for us to kind of sit around watching the news and, and be jaded and thinking, well, yeah, that system works, and that's the way it is in politics. Really, it's not just in politics, though. It, it's just like that on the playground for fourth graders. All right? It's the system of scapegoating. It's the system when... Uh, groups of people gather together and say, we need to find somebody that we can just bash on, that we can basically scapegoat, that we can basically call as the one that we are all going to gang up on and attack. Now, that attack may be verbally. That attack may be socially by simply boycotting relationships with them. That attack may be murder. But this is, by and large, the way the system of the world works. Sometimes it even works that way in churches. It's one of the reasons why sometimes you have even power plays within churches where somebody doesn't like the way somebody is operating. So what happens is a series of scapegoating. Somebody needs to be the evil person. Somebody needs to be marginalized. Somebody needs to be uh, identified as the wrongdoer and then gossiped about or blogged about or singled off and kicked to the curb or thrown under the bus. And what Really, the point that Paul is making here and that the story of the New Testament is that may have been the system of the world in which you once lived according to, but no longer. That is not you. The idea of of identity is so essential because what happens is that we are, for the most part, conditioned to think of ourselves in light of maybe who we are, uh, our job, our role, what we're doing in life, and we oftentimes tend to think that this is who I am. So, for example, if you were somebody who had a lot of money, 
you had some sort of fame, you had become very successful within your life, based upon what you do, it's easy for you to then begin to think that who you are is somehow intricately connected to what you do and the success that you become. So what happens is you live this type of life that as long as everything's going good for you, then you feel strengthened, you feel empowered, you feel really good, you feel as if your life is doing well. But the moment that type of thing which your identity has been based upon gets threatened, then you enter into moments of despair. It could be a relationship and the boyfriend or girlfriend or a marriage or if you're a mom, say for example, and your chiefest desire in your life is to be a parent. And if you view your kids with more than just simply a gift from God, to them, to you, your kids are like an idol. You derive life from them. If your husband or your spouse is what you derive life from, that is where you get your identity from. The moment that relationship is threatened, you don't just get sad. You sink into despair. And there's a difference between being sad or being bummed or feeling upset or rocked and fully entering into the moment of despair. It's really an issue of identity. Where's your identity? But the gospel comes to us and says that you are no longer part of the system of this world that is broken, that functions the way it functions in its disabled way. You're no longer identified by what type of job you have or what type of role you have. Those may be important in your life, and they play out various roles within your life, but they are not what give you your identity. I'll give you an example of this. Like for me, back in November-ish, most of you guys know the surgery that I'd gone through and had the little growth thing going on my vocal cord and all that, and had to have that thing removed, and had gone through a, kind of a lengthy process, a period of time of wondering, okay, uh, it, A, is this cancer? B, if it is cancer, what's that going to mean for me? C, if they have to uh, give surgery, uh, what's, what's that going to mean? After the surgery, am I going to have a, the ability to talk anymore? If I am able to talk, am I going to have to sound like Michael Jackson? If I'm going to have to sound like Michael Jackson, it's going to be a horrible thing for my career because I don't know if I even want to hear my own self-talk. Um, I had all these anxieties, fears, if you would, that were going, kind of going through my mind. I had to really kind of pause my life down and say, wait a minute, is my identity in what I do? Is my identity in standing up here delivering, you know, sermons to you guys. Am I more than that, or is this all that I am? Because if this is all that I am, then, yeah, you take away my ability to speak, then I become a nobody, and I enter into the path of despair. But if in reality my voice is just a gift from God that I get to use when he gives me opportunity, and if he's given it to me, and if he chooses to take it away, then... And my true identity is rooted in him that even if my ability to speak is taken away, I'm still poised and balanced because I belong to him. My identity is in him. This is what the gospel offers us. It gives us a brand new identity. That our identity is no longer the way it was with the Ephesians where hey, you're not just Gentiles anymore. Don't live like, don't act like Gentiles. You have a brand new identity. Look, if I can put it this way, it's easy to believe in Jesus. I just said it. Some of you are like, right, I thought it was really hard to believe. No, it's easy to believe in Jesus. It's easy to believe Jesus was the son of God. It's easy to believe in the fact that you know, he is the second person of the Trinity. It's easy to believe that he died. Whereas again, 
Those are easy facts if you choose to believe them. What's hard to believe in Jesus is the way that Jesus says, I want to reorder your entire world. That's what's hard to believe in Jesus. It's easy to believe certain facts about Jesus, but when Jesus comes to your life and says, listen, we're going to reorder the way and reorient the way that you live and the way that you view and the way that you see your life, your money, your sexuality, your identity, all of these things I Come to sit you free and to give you life and to deliver you from slavery to these things. Ironically, to be a slave to me. Now, we're a little bit uncomfortable with slavery language, of course, for various good reasons. But the idea is that if Jesus is king, as he claims to be, then Jesus' kingship claims are not just, and again, hear me out here, real quickly, that Jesus' kingship claims over us are not just simply claims at private spirituality. It's claims about how we order our lives in every level. If I can go one step further and say that Jesus' kingship claims over our lives are political. I don't mean politics like Republican and Democrat. I mean politics, the way that you live, function, order, organize the way that you live your life how you organize your life with other people, how you think and see and view and work with other people. That is how society is organized within our culture. We call that politics. But the politics of this world is, like I said, built upon a system of vengeance, built upon a system of getting back at somebody that has done you wrong, not the way that Jesus orders life with us. What we see with Jesus is him saying, I will give you a new identity. And the way I will give you a new identity is I will come into this world, the one who has the supreme identity of the universe. I will be one that has lost my identity so that you can be given a new identity. This is what we see, that he gives us a new identity. The second thing that we see is that he also gives us a new mind, a new mind. Paul is going to talk about verse 18. Uh, He says, you were once darkened in your understanding. It's the way which you process or think uh, about information. Um, It's the idea of how we deal with uh, info and the way we sort through. And what he's saying is that we were once darkened. Those uh, Ephesians, he's describing a part of your old life, is that you're once darkened in your understanding. This in no way means that people that are not Christians... Uh, have the inability to think or rationally uh, process thoughts, not at all. In fact, quite the opposite. What Paul is actually saying is that the idea of understanding here has to do with understanding and enlightenment of God, how we process, how we think of God in this world, how we process that. Do we understand who God is? Do we understand what God is up to? And what God does is he gives us a brand new mind. In verses 20 to 21, he goes on and he says this, he says, uh, he says, but that is not the way that you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and you were taught in him in truth. Uh, the truth is in Jesus. The point that Paul is making, I believe, is that it's not just simply that you learned information about Jesus, but that you come to know Jesus. There's a way in which we can learn information about Jesus, and there's a way in which we can learn, a, learn Jesus, know Jesus. It's the idea of relationship, knowing God. 
Um, I'll give you an example. Like when I was, uh, the way that I got saved, the way that I met Jesus, some of you guys probably heard my story before, but um, I was brought up in a Catholic church. And one of the things that I realized in a lot of ways and can even say that I'm, I'm thankful for is I learned about uh, the triune God. I learned Jesus came into this world uh, through Mary, that Jesus died on the cross for my sins, that Jesus uh, rose again from the dead, Jesus ascended to the Father. All of those truths are facts I learned through my Catholic upbringing. So I'm thankful for that. It's, it's all theologically sound, all theologically true. Um, but what happened for me when I came to first know Jesus was that it wasn't until a few years later that I was able to kind of look back and say what happened to me was I'd gone from a transition or in a transition from knowing simply about God, certain facts about God, to actually knowing God. This is the transition. This is what Paul is saying is that we basically have a, not only a new identity but a new mind, a new way in which we process, we understand uh, information about people, and we know this. You know, there's relationships with people that you have. I mean, think about Facebook. How many friends you might have? How many of those quote unquote friends that you have do you just know facts about? You know that they like chocolate cake. You know that they're really, really into their kid or their dog. You know certain facts about them, all right? And but you don't really know them. You don't know how they process information. You don't know what type of things that they truly love. You don't know the type of stuff that they actually struggle with and deal with in the innermost being. You don't know really that person. You know facts about them. And what Christianity is, what the gospel comes to us, and it says is that you were once alienated from this God, separated from this God by your minds being darkened. And what God has done is he's brought you into relationship with him. You have a new knowledge of God. And this is what Paul is saying. So not only is it a new identity, not only is it a new mind, but then he goes on and begins to talk about a new morality, that there's a new morality that begins to form within us. Now, this is one of those areas that oftentimes gets a little bit questionable because we don't like to have our morality tampered with. Now, I would even, I feel I have to say is that for the most part, Christianity in a lot of ways has sort of erred on the side of focusing so much so upon morality and so little upon gospel that I think it's important to understand the context of where Paul begins to talk about morality within the book of Ephesians. I mean, Paul literally waits four and a half chapters, four and a half chapters before he even begins to talk about new morality, what God begins to do in our lives, the way that we live our lives, the way that we think, the way that we live, how that we act, not only towards ourselves, but towards other people. Sometimes I'll have, and I've, over the years, I've had many people ask me questions, something along the lines of, okay, so if I'm going to be a Christian, if I'm going to follow Jesus, does that mean that I've got to stop living with my girlfriend or my, my boyfriend? Does that mean that I've got to stop having sex outside of marriage? Does that mean I have to stop doing drugs? Does that mean I have to stop you know, downloading porn? Does that mean I have to stop doing all of these things that they, for the most part, would view or deem as immoral? And, you know, a lot of times that question is, is a tough question because really what they're asking is, is, is Christianity just about moral change? And so oftentimes I have to answer that question by kind of saying, yes, you do got to change those things, but you've got to understand the context in which those things come. So let me put it this way. It'd be kind of like asking the question, now I've been married a little over 23 years now, but it'd be like, when I first met my wife and having fallen in love with her and having a dialogue with her, sitting down with her being like, look, I love you, you love me, we get along really well. If we're ever gonna enter into this whole marriage thing, do I have to stop having other girlfriends? Do I have to stop, you know, 
you know, engaging in whatever types of other scenarios that are going on in my life. Let's say if I was, you know, addicted to porn back then, do I have to stop downloading porn? They didn't even have internet back then, but let's just hypothetically say, do I have to stop doing all of these things that may be offensive to you? Do I have to stop these things? Do you understand that it's a silly question? Because in that context, what we're basically saying is, I love you, you love me, we want to do this thing called marriage where we come together, make vows to one another, to live with each other, to uh, serve one another, to love one another, till death do us part. So the, that's a wrong question. It, it, it'd be like, again, me even saying, you know, look, do I have to give up surfing forever? Do I have to stop hanging out with all my friends? Do I have to stop doing all of these things that I've found so much joy and delight doing? Do I have to give them up? Because if I have to give them up, I don't know if I want to be married to you anymore. It betrays the beauty of love. And so the reality is what Paul is saying is that, yes, morality, the way that we live our lives, the way that we conduct ourselves, the way that we live out our actions will be impacted by the gospel. Here's why. Here's what Paul is going to say. The very last verse that we had read earlier, verse 24. I'll read it to you again. He says this. And put on the new self, created after the likeness of God, in true righteousness and holiness. So if you understand the fundamental reality of what Christianity is, is that Christianity is God coming to us through this through Jesus, the proclamation of the fact that God says we are sick, we are broken, we are people that have uh, mismanaged our lives, and through the mismanagement of our lives, we have brought upon ourselves uh, various levels of defilement or brokenness or shame or destruction. Someone might be here saying, well, I don't feel shamed, I don't feel destroyed, I feel like my life is doing great. The reality is if that is your story or your narrative, then the gospel will feel very unnecessary to you. And the reality is, is you may not be ready to fully hear it yet because the way Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, you may or may not be bankrupt in spirit yet. You may or may not have actually felt or seen the bankruptcy that's truly ours through our own sinfulness. But what Jesus will go on to say is that those who see and feel the bankruptcy of their own lives, feel the sense of the futility futility of their own lives, feel these things, those that come to this consensus, those that come to this reality, they come to Jesus, Jesus rescues them, Jesus takes off through this act of God's power and strength in your life, allows you, helps you to take off your old self, to put on this new self, and then Paul says that this new self is one which is being renewed daily in righteousness and in the holiness of God. In other words, we are becoming made for what God purposed for us to be made for which is to not only walk in right relationship with God, but also walk in right relationship with our brothers and sisters on a horizontal level. Look, for too long, I feel that in a lot of ways, the church has focused primarily upon two things. One, morality. How are you doing? Are you getting drunk? Are you smoking weed? Are you downloading porn? If you are, stop. Because good Christians don't do that. The opposite end is... Basically saying, one day we're going to die, we're going to go to heaven, and it's all about you and Jesus, you loving God, and that's it, and we just got to bide our time uh, the best we can until God comes, swipes, and takes us away, and we go get to be with him. And there's not mention upon how we live and how we engage with other people on a horizontal level. So the point that I would make is this, is I would say perhaps a better balance would be identify that if we truly have been made new and given new life and new identity new hearts, 
than new minds, what begins to happen then is we love God. We're thankful to this God that has rescued us. And the way that we show gratitude and thankfulness to God, the way that that gets demonstrated is through our relationships with other people. It's one of the reasons why John the Apostle is going to say, look, if you claim to love God whom you can't see, but you don't love your brother who you can see, then he doesn't just simply say, that's really bad practice, do a little bit better. He says, you are actually living a lie. That's powerful thinking. Powerful thought, just think upon that for a moment because the reality is what it does is it reveals, it strips us to a place of saying we cannot run from our responsibility to serving, loving others. And that is where this relationship of morality begins to work itself into the picture. In other words, how we react, how we respond, how we relate, how we order our lives towards others on a horizontal level, in our lives, throughout our lives, will greatly be informed by the gospel and will also be demonstrative of the impact of the gospel upon our lives. So let me put it this way. I would say for the most part, in a lot of ways, over the past 40 years, we've seen major morality changes within America. You guys guys agree with that? Major. And it's not just because Fox News is telling me so. Uh, This is reality, and this is really actually happening in America, that there have been major morality type of changes and shifts within America. Now, the thing is, is that some would, if you were to kind of go back a long time ago and look at or analyze culture, say, from 40, 50, 60 years ago, and look at it, what you would find is that the morality of America, for the most part, in a lot of ways, lined up with New Testament Christian morals, in a lot of ways, in a lot of ways. Not in every way, but in a lot of ways. Now, some would look at that and think, well, what's happening is America is pulling further and further away from God. Some would say that. I personally, this is just my personal opinion, I, I, I mean, to some degree that may be true, but the point of the matter is, is that I think it's under this false assumption that America once was a strong Christian nation. Throughout the 50s, we were living uh, by explicit acts of great morality, and we were this wonderful moral nation, and now we're kind of going down the tubes. The point is, is that some have actually analyzed and critically analyzed this and suggested that in reality what has happened is that America, for the most part, has taken off an old morality and put on a new morality. That's radically different than what the gospel comes and offers us and says to us, is that what the gospel comes to us and says is that it's not about you putting off an old morality and putting on a new morality. It's about you putting off an old self and putting on a new self. It's radically different. That part of that new self, what Paul says, is a person who's being made renewed, a person who's being made new in the image of God. If I can put it this way, what the gospel is doing in your life is it's truly making you human. Do you realize that there's been all sorts of studies done about the negative impacts of pornography? One of the things about pornography is that uh, it not only dehumanizes another person, so therefore you can look at another image of a human being. And C.S. Lewis has kind of an amazing analogy about this. He says, you know, can you imagine if you went to another country or someone came in and you saw them, uh, you know, on a big screen, flash images of food, but nobody ever eats. Everybody starves themselves, but they just watch all these images about food. He would say, you know, what you would derive from that is that that's a nation, that's a group of people that have this fascination with food, but they're never really getting satisfied. They're never really 
They're always hungry, but never really getting anything to eat. They're undernourished. And the point is, that is the same thing with regard to pornography. That pornography is images that we are putting between, or before our eyes, somehow trying to satisfy this itch or longing or desire inside of us. It's never getting satisfied. And what it's doing is it's dehumanizing people so that now you cannot look at people in a pure way. You cannot look at them in a way as being an Im, uh, image bearer of God. You look at them as nothing more than an object. It objectifies the human body. And that is in of itself, by definition, dehumanizing. It reduces the humanity of that other person. But what the gospel does, it comes and it says, no, 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 we are image bearers of God. The gospel is restoring renewing. So let me just say this as a side. If you are somebody here today and you are stuck or mastered by porn, whether you're a male or a female, Jesus wants to free you. That action, that drug that you keep feeding yourself, that you keep indulging in is causing not only a dehumanization upon yourself, but it's also causing you to view others in an objective way in which you're not seeing other people as human beings. And the gospel comes and says it wants to rehumanize us. And this is what it does, that it gives us this new morality, not just simply by making us better people, but by making us new people. Not just nice people, as C.S. Lewis would also say, but new people. This is what the gospel does. The fourth thing is it also gives us a new motivation. Gives us a new motivation. Motivation is, you can think of it this way, it's the engine. It's the motor which moves us. Uh, There's three predominant forms of motivation that you can look at. Maybe there's a handful of other ones that are more nuanced from this. But the reality is, is at least three. The first of which is you can think about fear, pride, or love. So say, for example, if you're a mom or dad, oftentimes parents um, can oftentimes use the first two forms of motivation to get their kids to live according to certain standards of morality, right? Amen? Moms, dads, right? Like, stop yelling. Stop hitting your sister in Target. It's making me mad. And if you don't stop. I'm going to be constantly mad at you, and you're going to be a bad kid, and I'm going to shame you in front of all these kids. What will happen is that kid may actually begin to live according to their moral standards because they are afraid. They're afraid of what will happen. They're afraid of being whacked by mom or dad or abused by mom or dad, or they're afraid of shame. They're afraid of being marginalized or alienated or not being loved. They are Operating according to fear. Fear works. Do you hear me? Fear works. It has a shelf life, but fear works. The other way is pride. Moms and dads can be like, um, look, we want you to be a really good kid. We don't want you to be like the kids down the street. You know those kids down the street that watch all the bad shows, and they're so immoral and so messed up, and their mom and dad are bad, and they eat macaroni and cheese. And We're not going to be like those kids. <laughs> We're not going to be like those people. And, and the reason why we want you to live a certain way, a certain lifestyle, is because in the, it's, a, it's an appeal to pride. So what happens is the child grows up, and they look condescendingly upon everybody. And it fuels pride. So pride is a very powerful motivator. Churches do this sometimes. We want you to come to our prayer meetings. We want you to be at our things. We want you to get involved. And the more you get involved, the more you prove that you're this awesome, powerful, mighty person of God. And you are truly taking the gospel seriously. Let everybody else go to hell. Let every other church be sort of subpar. But you, you're awesome. 
You're superhero Christian. You are uber Christian of the month. And the fact of the matter is that pride also is a powerful motivating factor. But like I said earlier, has a shelf life. At some point, at some point when you fail, and you will, pride caves in on you and it begins to crush you. Fears cave in on you in the form of anxiety because you begin to realize how far you have failed. The other type of motivation is love. This is what Paul is going to say uh, in the next chapter as he begins to talk about this. He says, walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering. And what the gospel does is it basically gives us a new motivation. Not fear, not pride, but love. We love God. Do you realize how radical this is? That what Paul is saying is that what motivates us is not just simply accumulation of knowledge and of power and might, uh, pride. It's not fear, it's love. Love is what motivates us. Love is what fills our engine to do the things that we want to do now. So the point of the matter is, as I often have said this before, that if you look at your life and you are stuck in certain forms of sin, maybe porn like I alluded to earlier, maybe pride, maybe stealing, whatever it is, whatever these things that you may look at your life and just find yourself failing or not doing the things that you should... The, the, the key is, is not speak to yourself and say, come on, you're better than this. Knock it off. Be a better Christian. That will crush you at some point. You become your own worst oppressor. The best thing to do is for you to sit down someplace, get away with just you and your Bible, and focus upon the love of God and what he's done for you. Don't get up until your heart burns with a flame so bright that it makes you, it motivates you to say, I, I wanted to. I, I've said this before, that at the end of the day, for example, I already kind of alluded on pornography a couple times before earlier, but the point of the matter is, is that really issue of pornography is not so much a sin issue, although it is, it's really a worship issue. It's what we give our hearts to. It's what we are giving ourselves to with the expectation that it will give us something back. It's a worship issue. And what the gospel does is it comes to us and says, it's going to give us a new motivation. All of these other subordinate forms that work, but at some point break down and fail and then oppress and crush you have been replaced by, Paul says, love. To keep bringing our hearts back to the cross, reminding ourselves of the gift of God. The final thing, and I'm done, is a new heart is what the gospel offers us. A brand new heart. This is the promise from the Old Testament. For example... Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, he says, if anyone be in Christ, he is a new creation, is a new person. Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 26, this is from the Old Testament. This is a promise or prophecy given by uh, this great prophet Ezekiel, looking forward to the day that one day God will intervene. And rather than the people of Israel, for example, just simply being governed by laws or restrictions or rules or all these things, that God would actually give them a new heart and within their heart would be a new motivation And he says, I will put and give them a new heart, a new spirit, and I will put within you. And this is what the gospel does. It begins to transform us. Look, I've said this before, but the reality is that the gospel is not just simply good advice that we're to follow. It's good news. Let me put it to you this way. The last verse we'll read, and I'm done. He says this, uh, verse 21. He says, assuming that you have heard about him 
and were taught in him, as is the truth in Jesus, in verse 22, it says, but that you're to put off your old self, which belongs to the former manner of life, and is coming through deceitful desires, he says, and to be renewed in the spirit of your mind. The idea of being renewed is not so much the idea of go out and do renewal, it's the idea of be renewed. It's a gift, God giving you something. To the degree that you see that God in grace and kindness and love for you has given you something. That reorients your heart. It reorients your posture. It reorients your whole life. This is what we mean by the gospel changes you. It gives you a new heart. Rather than just simply viewing God as an angry middle management worker in heaven who's always frustrated with you, or a landlord who's never satisfied by the way in which you conduct yourself on you know, ground level, and he's always threatening to kick you out or evict you. But if you begin to see God as a father who loves you, who has been working in your life and who has worked in history to come and do something about your brokenness, to undo that, to bring forth in its place healing. And he's done this all as a free gift to you. By grace, you're saved. You can put it this way. It's about revelation, God revealing himself to us in response, us responding, receiving, accepting. That's what you do with the gift. You take it. You receive it. This is what the gospel does and changes us. I'm going to have the team come on forward, and we're going to wrap it up. But what I want to do is I'm going to read a little passage from a book from uh, C.S. Lewis. I've read this before, so this isn't totally new. But I just want to read it. It comes from the passage when um, some of you guys know in the Chronicles of Narnia, there's a kid by the name of Eustace, and he ends up kind of getting transformed into a dragon, and if you're familiar with the story, um, he's just this, like, horrible kid. He's always getting on everybody's nerves. He's just one of these kids, like, if you've seen the movie, too, you just, he's just one of these kids that you're like, I want to hit that kid in the throat. He's really annoying. <laughs> he's really, really annoying. But what happens is he ends up turning into a dragon, and as he's a dragon, uh, everybody, everybody, you know, distanced themselves from him. They alienate himself from him. He obviously cannot come near to them because everybody's afraid of him because his true colors, in a sense, really actually truly come out. So people see him for who he truly is. In other words, all that dragginess that was inside of his heart now becomes outside. So uh, what you see is really what was already in there. And then he begins to have this epiphany that he realizes, I've got to change. I've got to change. Something has to be done to undo this dragonness on me. So he begins to scrape at his skin and he begins to try to peel off these scales. And what he begins to discover is that all he's really doing is peeling off scales. Like, if you know lizards, right? Uh, they, they, they can, I, I guess, that, I'm not a huge lizard person, but I, I guess they shed skin. And that's what happened was that he was just simply shedding skin. It was nothing more than superficial change. Scales piled up on the ground all around because it was nothing more than superficial change. And then, all of a sudden in the story, the entire thing changes. Aslan shows up and he begins to do something for him. And this is where the story picks up. He says, the very, you know, later he has this interaction with Aslan, and now he's retelling the story. In other words, it's sort of his account of transformation, his way in which he was changed. This is what he says. The very first tear, Aslan, that is, he made, was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he had begun pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I'd ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. Next slide. It says, well, he peeled the beastly stuff right off, just as I thought I'd done it myself the other three times. Only they hadn't hurt. 
And there it was, lying on the grass, only ever so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than the others had been. And there was I, as smooth and soft, a peeled switch and smaller than I had been. Then he caught hold of me, Aslan. I didn't like that much, for I was very tender underneath now that I had no skin. Next slide. Then he threw me into the water. It smarted like anything, but only for a moment. After that, I became perfectly, it became perfectly delicious. And as soon as I started swimming and splashing, I found that all the pain had gone. And then I saw why. I turned into a boy again. This is what the gospel does. It rehumanizes you. Some of us have been dehumanized, broken, destroyed by the consequences, the results of sin on our lives. And the gospel comes in and says, unless a transition happens, unless an intervention takes place, then that course that you're on leads you to a course of everlasting brokenness, suffering, hurt, pain, destruction the gospel the good news is that Jesus comes and he says I intervened I came to break that cycle of destructive behavior sin practice on you not just to make you nice people but to make you new people not just to make you better people but to radically transform you into being sons and daughters humans again so that then now you can treat others as humans not as objects beautiful thing is that this offer is given to all, all of us. We're going to sing, we're going to respond. Why don't we all stand? We have communion in the back. It's a way for us to remember, to remember what Jesus has done for us, the price that it cost him to make us whole. We'll have some people off to the side that would want to pray for you. Anything that's going on in your guys' life, like I said earlier, some of the things I alluded to, guys, don't leave here without having some of these things broken, these cycles broken in your life. Don't think that you can do it by yourself either. God brought us here as a community so that we would respond as a community and we're here to love and serve as a community. So let's respond with sing. If you're a parent here, I know we might have gone just tap it light late. Please feel free to bring your kids in if you like. That's fine. Partake of communion with them but make sure you pick them up no later than uh, 1035. Jesus, thank you for the opportunity of worshiping, loving, honoring, serving, responding to you. God, I I pray right now that you would help us to recognize your great love and respond to that.